Good evening. How's everyone doing? Slide this over. Doing that good? Okay. <laughs> you guys sound exhausted. <laughs> Work hard today? No. Okay. Well, laying in bed will get you tired, so. All right. All right. So we're moving on. Um, I wasn't able to do Journey 180 um, Sunday, obviously, because I was up here, but I heard Adrian did an incredible job out uh, talking about the life of Joseph. So we are, we're just clicking on down this way and proper order. Good job. And so we're clicking on down this way and we're going to be hitting over the next um, couple weeks um, one of my favorite topics, and that is the life of Moses. And so I was late getting here. I, I was flying. I was flying, uh, speeding. I'll admit it right now with my cornerstone sticker. And I was flying down the freeway. And I got here, and I'm hearing the music. I'm like, oh, please don't be the last song. Please don't be the last song. But um, so these are being passed out right now. If you want them, um, grab them. If you don't, ignore them. Um, but this is um, our notes for tonight. Tonight we're going to um, start three straight weeks or three straight um, times at the Journey 180, going through the life of Moses. Moses is a key figure um, in the Bible. Um, so tonight we're going to hit it. This next Sunday morning at 10.30, um, we're going to be um, hitting it. And then next um, Tuesday as well. Moses is obviously talked about. Um, him and Abraham are quoted quite often um, throughout the uh, New Testament. The first five books in the Bible were um, written um, by Moses. So if you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and get rolling. Let's go to Hebrews. Hebrews is about 85, 90, eh, about 90% of the way through your Bible. If you get to James, go left. Hebrews chapter 11. And we've talked about this before, but Hebrews chapter 11 is sort of the, the walk of fame or the, the heroes of the Bible. And Moses obviously is one of those that by faith God enabled and so we pick it up in verse 23 of chapter 11. It says, By faith Moses' parents hid him from for three months after he was born, because they saw that he was no ordinary child, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of the Pharaoh's daughter. That's key. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than um, the treasures of Egypt. And hold on to that verse as well. Um, for the sake of Christ, he predates them by 1,500. Because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and the application of the blood so that... The destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. Moses is also talked about in Acts chapter 7. Um, Acts chapter 7 is a fascinating um, chapter. It, it's basically one of the longest sermons in the Bible. It's an apology from, an apology means the defense of the faith. And Stephen, right before he dies, standing in front of the exact same men, the exact same council that crucified Jesus just a little while earlier, makes a, an amazing stand um, for Christ. And he walks through, much like we're doing with Journey 180, he just walks through and starts threading um, the history um, of the Old Testament and, com and connecting it with Jesus. And, and so Stephen spends quite a bit of time um, on Moses. And we'll get to that in a second. But if you have your Bibles, go ahead and go the opposite way, all the way left. Um, right after Genesis, we get to the book of Exodus. So we're going to go ahead and crank through um, a couple chapters. So if you guys are ready, we're just going to be flying through that. As you look at our timeline, we've got Noah approximately about 2,500 B.C. We've got Abraham approximately 2,000 B.C. And we put Moses at around 1,500. As we've said before, these these are just basically for you to put some signposts. If you have one of those Journey 180 pamphlets, you'll see those um, at the bottom. This is just so you can connect the dots and know that um, certain events happen between these signposts. So it's easier to... Um, place events in the Bible. So with Abraham right here, and Abraham's son was who? 
Okay, Isaac. Okay, and then from Isaac we go down to Jacob. Okay, so we have some time passing from 2000 um, on down. And then we go from Jacob, and Jacob's name is changed to what? Israel. Okay, and Israel, Jacob had how many sons? Twelve. The twelve sons became the twelve what? Tribes of Israel. Very good. So, um, Sunday morning, um, Adrian walked through what, what that means. And we followed the life of one of his sons in particular, Joseph. Now, Joseph was the 11th born, so he was a ways down the line, but he was Jacob's favorite son. And so we walked through the whole idea of what Joseph was, in, or Joseph, and Joseph went from shepherd, and we watched his life as he got sold into slavery, betrayed by his brothers. Um, he was put into temptation after temptation. Every time you would think as a human, God would finally show up. And every time God actually did show up, Joseph's life actually got a little worse. And Joseph kept going through life with the faith that God had placed him here for a reason. And so even in prison, Joseph continued to live a life worthy of the call. And finally the moment came where Joseph was going to to do what he was born to do. And, and as you read through that, you find out that Joseph ends up interpreting some dreams for the Pharaoh. They are correct. Joseph ends up being elevated all the way to second in command of Egypt. Now, Keep in mind, Joseph was just a shepherd boy at the bottom of a cistern. And now he's second in command of not just Egypt, but at this time, Egypt is at its height and power. Egypt is the most powerful civilization in the world. And here's this shepherd boy, literally the prince of Egypt. And then we walk through and we see the whole idea when Joseph reunites with his family and the family ends up coming, escaping the drought that is up in Palestine, comes into Egypt. We know it's about 70 members of this family. And for the next 350 odd years, this family lives in Egypt and goes from 70 to several million. So we go from Israel just being one family to Israel exploding. Okay? So if you have your your handouts, what we have for you there is basically a chronological chart of the pharaohs of the 18th dynasty. Now, for those who know history, Egypt is one of the most difficult histories to understand and especially when we try to timeline where their pharaohs appear there's several different views there's there's um, common chronology there's late there's early um, these dates are the ones i've landed on um, as i look at egyptian history I, i'm probably the most comfortable with this um, just to explain what the dynasties were there are basically three kingdoms in egypt there's the old kingdom the middle kingdom and the new kingdom. And in between those is the first intermediate um, period and the second intermediate period. What we need to know is during the middle kingdom was the 12th dynasty. This is most likely when the story of Joseph took place. Okay? Then we go silent. Literally, the Bible goes silent from Genesis all the way to the first verse in Exodus for about 350 years. And during these 350 years, we have dynasties come and go. When we get to Exodus 1, we are now in the 18th dynasty of the new kingdom. Okay, 18th dynasty is rather famous. This is the dynasty that King Tut was part of um, later down the line. Actually, you'll see him um, down the ways there. The first thing you're going to notice is there's a pharaoh that we associate with Moses that is not listed here. Who is that? Ramses. Okay. So we grew up, well, I'm a little younger, but we grew up on Charlton Heston and um, uh, the Ten Commandments, but we, we saw it in repeats. And we all know Moses is Charlton Heston, and Charlton Heston is Moses, and we just need to leave it that way. Um, but in there, we see this pharaoh called Ramses. And this is a major, major assumption. This is a major, major assumption. In fact, Ramses doesn't appear until the 19th dynasty, at about 1200 BC. There is no way we can make the Bible 
and Ramses mesh. There's no way. And here's the reason why. If you go to Judges, actually don't go to Judges because that would be a horrible misstep. Go to 1 Kings. If you're in Exodus, 1 Kings is to your right. First Kings chapter six, and we'll just look at verse one. Now, First Kings this is taking place around Solomon. So Solomon was the son of who? David. So we know this is happening right around here. Okay. In the four hundred and eightieth year after the Israelites came out of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel. In the month of Ziv, in the second, the second month, he began to build the temple of the Lord. Okay, that's a major clue for us in understanding um, when the Exodus takes place. Again, we are so far removed from when the Exodus takes place, it's hard to get real dogmatic on, well, it happened on March 17th, 15th. It's really hard to do that. But most historians have placed the beginning of Solomon's reign somewhere around 970 B.C., give or take a couple years. Okay. And so if you do the math with what was said in verse one, 480 um, years removed from the Exodus, that places, uh, places us back to the 18th dynasty, not the 19th dynasty. So that means, um, Ramses wouldn't fit. In fact, we couldn't even squeeze Ramses in there. There's about two, two and a half, 200, 250 years, um, that are absent in order, in order to do that. So, Many biblical scholars actually believe that the dynasty that Moses bumped up against was the 18th dynasty. And then, in turn, that would have put Joseph at the 12th dynasty. So let's look at some of these names. You might get another clue by just some of the names of these pharaohs. Anybody catch any of those? Moses was related to who? Thutmoses. Thutmoses II. Thutmoses III. Amos. Okay, so we, we can see a little play there, but Moses most likely was born around 1530 during the reign of Thutmose I. So if you want to write on to the side there, around 1530, Moses was born. Now, before we get any further down this timeline, let's go ahead and start reading in Exodus chapter 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel. Who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, will join our enemies." Fight against us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. Okay, that's not the Pharaoh Ramses. They built the city of Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. And in all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. All right, so we see that from Jacob's initial family, his 12 sons, and then the 70 that came in, numbers grew. Estimates are anywhere between 2 and 7 million um, over the next 300 or so years. Okay, so we've got um, Israel coming out of Palestine, escaping a drought, going into Egypt, and for the next 350 years, they're multiplying. Eventually, a pharaoh, a king, a pharaoh, 
comes in and goes, you know what? We've got to be careful. If they get too numerous, they're going to take us over. Now, here's the history of Egypt we need to understand. For a short period of time of about 300 years, um, in Egyptian history, a group called the Hiskos came from Canaan and ended up ruling in Egypt. Finally, the Egyptians um, chased them chased them out, and this is in just history, chased them out, and they swore they would never allow that to happen again. So if you, if you forget the Bible, if we're just looking at history, for 300 years, a group called the Hiskos came in, they grew, they ended up taking over, and then they finally got shut down and chased out. Okay? That sounds like an exodus. Okay? That sounds like a group from Canaan, which Jacob was from, came in over 300 years, they eventually took over, they took over fairly right away with Joseph, and then eventually they were chased out. Okay? So let's keep going here. Okay, so they put slave masters over them. Verse 15. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shurpra and Pua, horrible names, by the way, from... When you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on, de- on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. By the way, this is just a, an example of um, when we're under authority, like currently, we need to obey the laws of the land and we need to obey what the government tells us with an exception. If the government goes against what God has commanded us to do, we are biblically allowed to ignore that. So we see an example uh, of something um, right there. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before midwives arrive. It's awesome. So God... (laughs) So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then the Pharaoh gave this order to all the people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. So he just bypassed the whole midwife piece. All right. So let's look at this. If we understand that Moses was born most likely in 1530, the midwives, the the Pharaoh that most likely ordered the midwives to kill um, the babies was Amenhotep. Very possible. Thutmosis I most likely was the one that ordered the babies to be thrown in the Nile. There is a chance that Amenhotep did both of those. Okay, Moses was most likely born in 15, 1530 during Thutmose I's reign. Okay, so the birth of Moses. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When he saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Okay, the only two times in the Bible any vessel is coated with tar and pitch are the big ark, Noah's ark, and the little ark that carried Moses. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. And I know it's easy just to read through the Bible and go, okay, that's cool, that's cool, that's cool. Every once in a while we need to stop as a parent and go, how hard would that be? How hard would that be to place your child in a basket and just send it down the Nile? Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go to get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, and in that culture, um, babies were nursed, male babies were nursed up to about four years. 
She took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses saying, I drew him out of the water. All right. So here we go. We've got Pharaoh's daughter. What is Pharaoh's daughter doing? She's bathing in the Nile. What does she see? Yeah, the, the, this little this little basket. She opens it up. There's Moses. Had to have been shocking. What does she do next? Okay, she finds out. She understands it's Hebrew. And then she drowns him in the Nile, right? No, what does she do? Yeah, she saves him. She... She gives him back to his sister, basically, and goes back to his mother, and he's nursed for a couple years, and then given to the Pharaoh's daughter, who then calls him Moses. So it wasn't the Hebrews that called him Moses, it was the Pharaoh, the Egyptians that actually called him Moses. Okay? What sounds strange about that story? Huh? Yeah, she disobeyed her father, for one. Some people have a hard time with that. Um, those who are parents probably don't have as hard a time with that. Um, but here's, here's one thing that we need to understand. The Nile, um, everything in Egypt was worshipped. Everything in Egypt was worshipped. The Nile was also worshipped. The Nile um, was considered a god and a god of fertility. A lot of the women would go down there and bathe, praying to be fertile. So, as... Pharaoh's daughter is bathing in the Nile, most likely praying to the God of fertility. What does the Nile produce? A baby. So there, there is good reason why the Pharaoh's daughter could have disobeyed the Pharaoh. The other one is she might have been a teenager. Okay, so either, either one of those um, works out. Um, a third possibility is the divine hand of God. Let's don't overlook that one as well. All right, so who is the, who is the Pharaoh's daughter? I'm going to propose that it is the queen Hatshepsut. Be real careful saying that. Hatshepsut. Now, this queen is famous in Egyptian history. She's probably, aside from Cleopatra, the most powerful pharaoh who was a female. However, most of that wasn't discovered until about 100, 150 years ago because she was basically wiped off the map of Egyptian history. And we'll get into that. But I honestly believe um, that um, Hatshepsut is the Pharaoh's daughter that pulled Moses from the Nile and eventually adopted him as son in order for Moses to eventually become the prince of Egypt. And then, as God typically works, we have a shepherd becoming prince of Egypt Bringing God's people into Egypt into the most perfect, into the most perfect incubator you can possibly imagine. Egyptians would not touch a Hebrew. They would not intermarry at all. Okay, that wouldn't happen and Hebrews wouldn't do the, um, do the same. And so for about 400 years, the bloodline is kept absolutely pure as a nation grows. That is the only way possible when we look back at it with our 2020 vision that something like that could have happened. It could never have happened in Canaan. It could never have happened in Canaan. But God, I believe, ordained his people to be in this situation for the amount of time until they developed into a nation in and of themselves. And then when they were at the proper size, he released them. God provided a leader to bring them into this situation. Someone who became had enough talent and enough leadership and enough wisdom to go from shepherd to the prince of Egypt. We got 350 years or so, and then we go from prince of Egypt right back down to shepherd. God works in amazing ways. And so the story continues to get um, pretty cool. So let's keep going. Moses flees to Midian on verse 11. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that, he, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out to, and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked them, um, sorry, he asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. 
When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down at a well. Okay, we'll, we'll leave it at that. So we don't get much of Moses' life for his first 40 years. In just a couple seconds, we go from the fact that he was plucked out of the Nile, and now he's a full-grown man. He murders an Egyptian, and now he flees. That's about 40 years of Moses' life. If you want to look at Moses' life, you can split it into three almost identical sections. You can go 40 years, he was in Egypt. 40 years, he was in Midian. And then 40 years, he was wandering in the desert. So Moses had three distinct periods in his life, all three incredibly important. The Bible, however, spends very little time on the first 80 years. So we have to fill in the gaps. Now, as I say that, we're going to fill in the gaps with extra biblical sources. When we do that, you need to know that is not inerrant. Okay, there can be mistakes there. There can be, there's assumptions, there's guesses and all that kind of stuff. So anytime we go outside of the Bible, whether it's in devotion time, whether we're reading some other pastor's book or we're going into um, the historicity of something, you need to understand that's extra biblical and that's not inerrant. But one of the scholars um, um, early on was a man named Josephus. Josephus was a Jewish historian and, and he kept a, a fairly strong history of of the Jews. Now, he was an antagonist against Christians. He did not believe Jesus was the Messiah, but he did keep fairly good good records. And if you read Josephus, he fills in a little bit of the gaps of Moses. We find out that Moses, as he was growing up as the prince of Egypt, was actually a strong leader. The Bible does talk about that he grew up and he was educated with all the... And Stephen fills that in. We see that in Hebrews, that he was educated in the finest of the universities. He was um, he was introduced to all the philosophies, spoke the languages. Um, we find out in Josephus, however, that Moses was a general. Okay? Moses was a general. He was a leader of the army. And so Moses... Um, had many campaigns. One campaign um, in Josephus that's talked about is a campaign into Ethiopia where Moses led a great victory against the country of Ethiopia and actually married an Ethiopian wife. And the Bible references her later on. Okay, So we find out that Moses was actually highly skilled. He was an incredible leader and he was the perfect person to actually become the next Pharaoh. And we find out if we place him in this timeline, again, which is also extra biblical, okay? If we place him in this timeline, then he was drawn out of the Nile by Hatshepsut, okay? So let me walk through this crazy little timeline of the Egyptian order here. Amenhotep was the father of Thutmosis I. Thutmosis I had two children. The first child was Hatshepsut. The second child was Thutmosis II. He had him with different, um, different wives. The first wife only was able to bore, or bear a, um, a daughter, and that was Hatshepsut. So he needed to go get someone else. Her name was Mutnofret. Okay? And that was Thutmosis II's mother. Here's where it gets crazy. Hatshepsut and Thutmosis II were brother and sister, stepbrother and sister. However, they married each other. Okay? So they married each other. Hatshepsut had one daughter, Nefer, Neferruer, what, doesn't matter. Um, and then she had an adopted son, which was who? Moses. She plucked him out of the water. They did not have a boy within themselves. So Thutmosis found another wife. Her name was Iset, and she bore him a son who was Thutmosis III. Thutmosis II died fairly early on, and Thutmosis III was just a baby when that happened. Here we get Hatshepsut's opportunity to step up more than just a queen of Egypt. She ends up becoming king. Technically, Thutmosis III became pharaoh in 1504. The same time Hatshepsut did. But he was a baby, so she co-reigned with him as his regent, but she was in control. Okay? She was in control for a while until he got of age, and then they both reigned together, but he started taking some power. 
Thutmosis III had a son. His name was Amen Nem Hat, or Amen N. Hat. That was his firstborn child. That would come into play in our story. Thutmosis III would have a second child, Amenhotep II. Okay? Both, again, from different wives. And then we go down further. Amenhotep would have two sons from the same wife. Look at that. Amenhotep would have two sons, Thutmosis IV and Amenhotep. Amenhotep was his firstborn. There's not a number behind him because he never became Pharaoh to be Amenhotep number three. Okay? So, Moses, as he was plucked out of the Nile, grew up to become um, a powerful player in Egypt, in, in Egypt. Around age 40, he got disenchanted. And with the death of the Egyptian, he ended up fleeing. This is about the same time that Thutmosis III was coming into power. Would Moses be a threat to Thutmosis III? Yes. Yes, because Moses, if he stayed and if he obeyed, he technically would have been the next pharaoh. He's supposed to be the next pharaoh. Thutmosis III should never have had that. Okay? So, but doesn't matter. Moses ends up fleeing. He flees to Midian where he spends 40 years. During that time, we have um, Hatshepsut dies. And then we got Thutmosis III who lasts all the way to 1450. It was Thutmosis III that Moses would return to and ask for his people to go. Okay? So Thutmosis III was the one that he would return to and ask his people to go. So let's go back into the the story. Okay, Moses and the burning bush. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro. um, I'm sorry, chapter 3, verse 1. His father-in-law, the prince of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness. He came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There, the angel of the Lord. Repeat that. There, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flames of the of fire from within the bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight. Why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called him from within the bush. Moses, Moses. Um, And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid and and afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the, I'm going to, all the ites. And now the cry of the Israelites had reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Okay. Moses, prince of Egypt, at age 40, somewhere around there, he flees from Midian. Now, if you can picture Egypt in your mind at the top piece of Africa, then we got the Sinai Peninsula right next to it. Midian is actually over where modern-day Saudi Arabia would be. Okay, I'm sorry for you. Modern day Saudi Arabia would be. So Moses fled across the Sinai Peninsula over to Midian. And that will play a part in Sunday's chat. So Moses fled to Midian and for 40 years he became what? A shepherd. Here's the prince of Egypt, the great general Moses. Well educated. Had everything. And now he's a lowly shepherd. And I think he's enjoying himself. He's relaxing. He's 80 now. He's retired. (laughs) And then he stumbles upon a burning bush. And I guarantee you that 
At some point, as Moses is walking around the wilderness, at one point in his life, he mumbled, why did I go to the bush? Why did I go to the bush? But he did. And most of us would. You see a burning bush. Now, if it's burning, okay, lightning struck it. But after it's still burning after a long time, you go and check it out. And then the bush starts talking to you, and now you're... (laughs) Okay? The angel of the Lord was in the bush from those who have been with us in Journey of the Eighty. Who's that? Jesus. Okay? Um, So, he's speaking to Moses. He's asking Moses what? To go. Why? Because God's people are in Egypt. God's people are in Egypt, and they need a leader to take them out. Now, as we look at the Old Testament, and we look back, we, we get the just the great opportunity to look back and see how amazingly wise God is. Name one person on the face of the earth at this time who was more qualified to lead Egyptian or Hebrew people out of Egypt. Who knew the land? Who took his armies all over the Sinai Peninsula? Who took them all over Africa? Who was um, equipped to lead many people? Who knew Egypt like the back of his hand? But who also knew the Hebrews after 40 years of spending time in Midian? Moses. There couldn't have been a more perfect person to do this. And God does this all the time. We look in the New Testament at Paul. There couldn't have been a more perfect person for God to have chosen to take the gospel out. And so Moses is the chosen one. And Moses is excited about it, right? No. Okay. Moses is about to give off a list of five excuses. Five excuses. And God is going to give him five answers. And technically, the first four excuses are reasons. They're actually good reasons, sort of. Okay, so let's look at excuse number one. We find that in verse 10. Let's go to verse 11. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? That is a dumb question. You're the only one, Moses. You're perfect. Who am I? So his first excuse is who am I? What was God's answer? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said, suppose I go and the Israelites say to me, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? Excuse number two. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you were to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Who else said that? Jesus. I am the living bread. I am from above. I am the light of the world. Before Abraham was, I am. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the son of God. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. Jesus loved those words. Because those are the only words that need to be said. Excuse number one, Moses said, who am I? God basically says, doesn't matter who you are, I will be with you. The Bible promises that God will never leave us, forsake us. He will be with us till the end of time. And no matter who you are, whether you're just a pauper or you are the prince of Egypt, it doesn't matter because God is with you. And when someone finally gets that, then the words by faith can be placed in front of their name. Eventually, Moses got that. Second excuse Well, what do I say? Who are you? The answer, I am. Reason number three, and let's scoot over to chapter four, verse one. Moses answered, what if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, what is in your hand? A staff, he replied, throw it to the ground. The Lord said, Moses threw it to the ground and it became a snake and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, 
is so they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, there's a lot of repetition here, has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, the skin was leprous and it became as white as snow. Now put it back into your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak. And when he took it out, he was, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, if they do not believe you or pay attention to the first sign, then they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some of the water from the Nile and pour it in on dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. Okay, so the third excuse, what do I, um, I have no power, basically. God's answer, I am the power. Okay? So Moses has a staff. What's a staff mean to a shepherd? Everything. It's his life. The shepherd's crook. This is his occupation. This is his life. This is what he uses. God is basically telling him, take your, take, take what you have in your hand, throw it to the ground and watch what happens. And that's what God always says. Okay, we don't always have a shepherd crook, but however God has trained us, however God has gifted us, he's asking us to throw that in. He's asking us to throw that in because that will be evidence that God is working within us. Okay, so he throws it to the ground. It becomes a snake. For me, that would scare me to death. Okay, and it scared Moses too. I, I cannot stand snakes. They scare me. I, I cannot stand spiders either. Again, I've said this before. If I was Noah, those, those two things would be extinct. Okay? They would not have made it on my ark. Okay? So, but Moses tosses the, the staff down, becomes a snake. He's asked to do what? Grab it the proper way? No. Grab it the, you know, the TV show, the donkey way, and just grab it. Yeah. Okay? And all of a sudden it becomes a staff again. Moses. Take your hand, put it in your cloak, comes out, it's leprous, okay? Some of us have dealt with lepers, and that is a horrific disease, horrific disease. It isolates you, it separates you, you lose your your fingers, you lose all, it's horrific. And so Moses had to have been staring at that going, oh my goodness. And then he puts it back in his cloak and it becomes back. God is looking at him saying, you don't need any power. I have the power. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And that statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life, it literally means I am the way because I'm the truth and the life. Moses doesn't need anything. He just needs to obey. We said this Sunday, God forgives sins. He does not forgive excuses. Reason number four, let's look at verse 10. Excuse number four. Moses said to the Lord, pardon your servant, the Lord. He's being nice. Pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. Okay. That's not true. (laughs) That's not true. And by the way, that statement, many people who haven't dug in deeper assume that Moses was a stutterer. That's not true. In fact, in Acts chapter 7, verse 22, Stephen outs him. Moses was taught all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was powerful in both speech and action. Moses didn't have a speaking ability. He was a leader. He was the prince of Egypt. He was a general over armies. He had no issue with speech. But God would play along. The Lord said to him, who gave human beings their mouths? Who made them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and I will teach you what to say. Verse 13. But Moses said, pardon your servant, Lord. And finally, Moses finally stops the excuse. He just cuts to the chase with truth here. Please send someone else. Then the Lord anger, the Lord's anger burned against Moses and said, and he said, what about your brother Aaron, the Levite? I know he can speak well. He is already on his way to meet you. And isn't that funny? God and 
he was already on his way. Um, he was already on his way to meet you, and he will be glad to see you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will, I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you, and it, and it will be as if it was your mouth and as if um, you were God to, to him. But take the staff in your hand so you can perform the signs with it. Then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Let me return to my people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. Again, he lacks faith. God told him they're all there. Jethro said, Go, and I wish you well. Verse 19, Now the Lord had said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all those who wanted to kill you are dead. That's a key statement. All those who wanted to kill you are dead. Okay, Moses is no longer dealing with the same people. They are dead. Okay, so we are now moving in to, um, moving up. Hatshepsut is dead. Um, Where are we at? Hatshepsut is dead. um, And those who wanted to kill him are now dying. Okay, so his final statement was, you know what? God, I don't want to go. And at least he's finally being honest. Now that statement turned the first four reasons into excuses because those were never accurate reasons. But God met him with an answer each and every time because Moses was the one God chose. Moses was the one God chose. He was God's chosen instrument. And as we find out, Moses is the person, the exact person that God needs to do this. Now, Moses would end up going in, in, into Egypt. Egypt's changed over the last 40 years. We've got some new leadership and, and, and stuff in place. They would know who Moses was, though. And so Moses would come in, and we'll get to this at the next session as we go through the, the plagues and how exactly Moses fled. This next session you want to be at as we go through the plagues and watch as Egypt or as the, the Israelites go from Egypt over to where they're supposed to go. Now, they were promised to go to the promised land, but we'd find out they would break that. We will also, during the next session, walk through the Ten Commandments and everything that led up to that. We'll talk about the Red Sea, the miracle of the splitting. And there's some fascinating pieces as to where that Red Sea might be placed. I think it's going to be different than what we've been taught as children. Okay? Next week, you will probably discover that some of the maps in the back of your Bible could possibly be wrong. Again, maps and commentaries are all part of Zondervan, for example, if you have the NIV. So we're going to walk through and we're going to try to study as historians to see what actually makes sense where Moses is. But ultimately, what we need to understand about Moses' life is that he was born, he was spared, divinely spared by God. He was trained for 40 years in the best training the world could possibly train him in. And then he was trained for 40 years in the best possible training God can prepare him in. So by the time he was 80 and he stumbled into a bush, he was a lethal weapon. He was a lethal weapon. He had all the training of a military man, all the training of a leader, and now he had all the training under God. And when those two came together, amazing things happened. And what we need to catch from that is each and every one of us, even before you were a Christian, were gifted and trained in some way. And a lot of us, when we, when we turn our life over to Christ, we look in a totally different way than where maybe God wants us to be. So I want to challenge you this week. Look back on your life and what has God gifted you? Where is your training and how could you possibly use your training to move mountains for God? Moses eventually used his training in the most miraculous way possible. He was the chosen one. He was the one and the only one, I think, that could have done that. Now, we don't know whether whether God or whether Moses disobeyed God when he was 40. Maybe God would have rather him stayed in Egypt and become Pharaoh and taken the people out that way. We don't know. But God, no matter what you've done in your past, no matter what you're going through, God will eventually run into you. And he will meet you right where you're at. And if you are humble and willing to go, and if you are humble and obedient... 
God will use you. And this story of the Egyptians and this story of the Hebrews and how they bumped shoulders for about 400 years is completely fascinating. And it's something that it's a blast to study. But we don't want to lose the point that God is God. He is I am and he has a plan for our lives. And God's plan for the Hebrews, for the Israelites, was absolutely brilliant. To take a family unit to put them in this incubator, grow them into a nation, provide a leader for them, and send them out. They left, and over the 40 years and wandering, became a nation that could never have happened any other way. So it's a powerful statement. So next week, we're going to really dig into this timeline, and we're going to watch how that, that plays, how that plays out. All right? So real quick, do we have any questions? Um, Hold off on questions on the timeline because we're actually going to break that apart next week. But I wanted to at least give you a heads up and start um, digging into it. Any questions at all? Yes. Yes. I've always wondered how the princess was able to hide Moses from the Pharaoh. The what now? How the princess who raised Moses... How was she able to hide him from her father? Um, the Bible doesn't talk about that, but I'm pretty sure um, at the time she was she was more than just uh, an average girl. The fact that she had attendance and the way the Bible um, and history descri- describes her, um, she had a lot of power. So, yes, the Pharaoh had ultimate power, but if you were under Hatshepsut and you told anybody that that was a Hebrew baby... <laughs> you, you, you'd be in trouble. So, as she pulled him out as a baby... Um, um, what she said to her father, um, whether it was Hatshepsut or it's the Pharaoh's daughter, maybe it's someone else, um, we don't know. But she was able to hide that fact um, um, from the Pharaoh at least for a while until Moses ended up denouncing the fact that he was even the Pharaoh's, uh, denouncing her as much, and all that kind of stuff, which we'll get to at the next time. Yes, sir. You mentioned in an uh, extra-biblical reference that Moses was a general. Have they ever found any archaeological evidence in Egypt on any pillars or whatnot? If he was a general, obviously they would have had some kind of memorial, for lack of a better word, with his name upon it. Have they found anything? Yes and no. Okay? So, as we look at, at Moses, and even Hatshepsut, and Hatshepsut has absolutely been verified, and there, there's pictures of her now as a queen. Um, she took on a beard, so a lot of the a lot of the images of her had a beard, but all women would have worn that because it was more of an image of the uh, um, the pharaoh. What Egyptian history is known for is what we would call revisionist history. When they lost battles. In a hundred years, you would never have known they lost a battle. When they were embarrassed, in a hundred years, you would never know they were embarrassed. When someone betrays them, in a hundred years, that person would disappear off the face of the earth. Hatshepsut is one of those examples. Um, As we go on in history, um, Amenhotep would come in furious and start removing, and even Thutmose's three would start removing any images um, in Egypt that represented um, her. And so throughout Egypt, there's there's different places where you can see her face has been removed and all that. And it wasn't until about 100, 150 years ago, and actually Stacy probably filled in better, um, when all of a sudden um, Hatshepsut started being uncovered. And they started uncovering the this idea, oh, this is that missing link we've been looking for. So as we look at um, the Hiskos... Um, um, as we look at um, maybe the story of the Exodus and Moses, those were moments that um, the Egyptians and the dynasties would not want to stay in their history. And so there's very good reason to understand that a lot of those would have been removed. There are, there are some um, hieroglyphics and some writing that tend to lend to um, Moses and tend to lend to um, um, Joseph, for example, back, um, back a couple hundred years earlier. But, of course, Egyptian history is so ridiculously hard to understand. Even today, the chronologies are all different. Um, sometimes they list three successive pharaohs, and then in one chronology, that pharaoh is all the same person. And so some of the dates and all that kind of stuff is a little harder to understand. Then you add um, the instance about um, four to 600 um, A.D. when Islam came in. And Islam went through and totally 
changed everything, changed history. In fact, when you look at like the Ten Commandments, the movie, what do all the Egyptians look like? Middle Easterners. If you really look back in history, Egyptians were probably as dark as Ethiopians, um, uh, but because that didn't flow with the Islamic belief, and, and they wanted Egypt to come out of some kind of Middle Eastern heritage, all of a sudden all those images started being changed around. So, um, so yeah, there are some pieces. Josephus is our main cause. And remember, Josephus is not um, pro-Christianity by any stretch of the imagination. He's absolutely anti-Christ and all that. Um, there are some other slight references in some Roman historians, Tacitus, Suetonius, and stuff like that. But again, it is hard. So it's a lot of pieces putting together. Yes? Okay, you touched on a couple of these already, but I, I find it difficult to understand how Pharaoh could not have known that Moses was a Hebrew. Yeah. Um, you know, at the time they were distinct races, so mm-hmm. he would have looked different, as, mm-hmm. as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. And then when he realizes that he killed an Egyptian, that he says he must be killed, Mm-hmm. As his true son, he would have placed the value of his life mm-hmm. above the Egyptian. So, what's the general consensus? Yeah, it, again, that, that both of those are, are great questions as to why um, the Pharaoh allowed that to slip by, or what excuse the Pharaoh's daughter and the Bible silent on that. And actually, history silent on that as well. Um, we don't know how she pulled it off. It's very possible. Um, Dads, that the Pharaoh's daughter came up with the big old eyes, and here's my little baby. Can I have him? Or can I keep him? Can I love him? You know, all that kind of stuff. I don't know. I don't. I don't actually know how that came about. But um, um, from other historical sources, it seems like Moses did rise up, and even from biblical sources, obviously that rose or Moses did rise up when the Pharaoh knew that Moses was was Hebrew or what, what his lineage was, we don't know. And the, the Pharaoh that actually went after him was not her father. It was her, the one, her co-regent. So, but, yep. I have a question about uh, Pharaoh's daughter when she found Moses in the basket. Uh-huh. And she said to um, the, her person that takes care of her, mm-hmm. shall I go and call a nurse of a Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? And the girl went and called the child's mother. Mm-hmm. So did she actually go and find Moses' true mother? Because then it goes on to say, then Moses, then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse it for me and give you, I will give you wages. So the women took the child and nursed it. And the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter. Mm-hmm. So how long was this Moses' real mother that had him for a while? Gave, she gave him back? Yeah, if you back up a little bit um, into verse 4, and actually we'll, we'll go back um, to 3. Um, but when she, she could hide him no longer, okay, so he might have, we, we don't know how old he was, but um, when she could hide him no longer, um, and most likely three months or so. Um, when she, um, but when she could hide him no longer, she got the papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. And then verse 4, his sister stood at a distance um, to see what would happen to him. So it was actually his sister um, that stood there and then watched the whole scene happen. Um, I'm sure that her, his sister's probably going... <gasps> Um, but um, one of the, the actual moments of bravery that no one ever gives credit for, that little girl, his sister, walked up to the Pharaoh's daughter and, and started this. So it was his sister that was there, and so she would have known, obviously, to take him back to mom. So it was a really cool divine moment where God actually got Moses back um, nursing with his, with his actual mother. How long was he there before he was? We there? don't know. Culturally, um, historians um, believe that um, um, nursing could have been anywhere between two to four years. So it, it was a while, which probably could help, under, help help us understand how Moses knew he was Hebrew and all that kind of stuff. All right. Any other questions? And of course, you can come up front afterwards. All right, well, um, we'll let you go get your kaboomers. Let's go ahead and close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you for your wisdom. 
Heavenly Father, we just pray for wisdom ourselves that we could see things the way you see them. And as we look back um, in history some 3,500 years ago, Heavenly Father, we see your divine hand as it continues to carry um, this thread all the way to the cross. And and, um, the genius that it was bringing um, Joseph into a foreign land, um, into a powerful foreign land, um, and how you were able to to bring your people into that situation and then um, raise them up um, some 300 years later. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the story of Moses. We thank you um, that by faith Moses was able to accomplish a whole bunch because he had faith in you. Um, Heavenly Father, I just pray for us that as we um, answer our call from you, and each and every one of us has a different plan, a different call, um, different places that you have placed us, Heavenly Father, I pray that we look back to our own history, our own training, and see how you've uniquely prepared us for the the moment um, that you will have us placed in. How you've gifted each and every one of us, not only gifted us secularly or worldly, but gifted us spiritually, and how those two could come together um, if we would only humble ourselves and obey you. Heavenly Father, as we continue to study through the life of Moses, I pray that we continue um, to see that, that this thread is being cared for by you. Um, Heavenly Father, bring us back um, Sunday for some and, and the rest of us uh, next Tuesday. Bring us back safely. We love you and we praise you. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen. All right. Thank you much. See you.